Support for the Lincoln Project podcast comes from Odoo. If you feel like you're wasting time and money with your current business software, or just want to know what you could be missing, then you need to join the millions of other users who've switched to Odoo. Odoo is the affordable, all-in-one management software with a library of fully integrated business applications that help you get more done in less time for a fraction of the price. To learn more, visit odoo.com Lincoln. That's O-D-O-O dot com slash Lincoln. Odoo, modern management made simple. Hey, everybody, before we get started, I just want to encourage everyone here, watch the select committee on January 6th hearings. I think it is an important historical record of one of the worst days in our country's history. And I think it's important that you are able to see for yourselves just what happened on that day, who was responsible, and that you can share that information with your friends and your family and your colleagues when they say none of it matters. Every bit of it matters. I hope you'll tune in. I hope you'll find all of our content, ask us questions. And now, on with the show. Welcome back to The Lincoln Project. I'm your host, Reed Galen. Today, I'm joined by Barbara F. Walter, author and professor of international affairs at the School of Global Policy and Strategy at the University of California, San Diego. She's one of the leading experts on civil wars, political violence, and terrorism, and is a permanent member of the Council on Foreign Relations, a frequent live guest on CNN, and an active consultant for the World Bank, the United Nations, and the Departments of Defense and State. Barbara's also written numerous books, including her latest, How Civil Wars Start and How to Stop Them. Gang, I ran through two highlighters on this book. Buy this book at your local bookseller or Amazon. Today, she is coming to us from San Diego, California. Barbara, welcome. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be here. So, you know, I want to talk about the book. But before we do that, give us a little bit about how you got into this particular field, because a lot of folks are experts on foreign affairs. But, you know, civil wars, as Americans, we tend to focus on our own civil war. But we don't really think about the things that go into them, especially, I'd say, in the sort of post-World War II almost century. So tell us how you got into this. So I started studying civil wars around the world, not the American Civil War, but all the ones that were happening outside the United States in 1990. I just started graduate school and the Cold War was just ending. And my field, international relations, was consumed almost entirely with the U.S.-Soviet Union conflict, the dissolution of the Soviet Union. And to me, that was ending. And what I saw beginning was these small wars around the world. I remember reading about Somalia in the New York Times, and then about Rwanda and about Yugoslavia. And the explanation that everybody gave was, oh, you know, these wars, it's just different ethnic and religious groups who hate each other. They've always hated each other. They'll continue to hate each other. And I found those explanations deeply unsatisfying. And what really tipped me off was that Somalia had one of the most brutal and long-lasting civil wars. And of all the countries in Africa, it's the only one that's ethnically homogeneous. So that explanation didn't explain probably the most violent civil war that we were experiencing. And so as a researcher, this just lights a bulb in your head and you think, here we're seeing more and more of these types of wars, and we don't understand why. And the explanations that are being given 
are deeply unsatisfying. And so I started studying them. It turns out that civil wars have been increasing pretty consistently since 1945, reached a peak in 1992, declined a bit in the aftermath of the collapse of the Soviet Union. And we are now at a new peak. There are more civil wars going on today around the world than at any time in the Earth's history. So that's how I started studying civil wars. In 2017, I was asked to serve on a task force run by the U.S. government called the Political Instability Task Force. It's run through the CIA. And the goal of the task force, or one of the goals of the task force, is to help the U.S. government predict where around the world political instability, political violence, and civil war is likely to break out. So they wanted a predictive model that would give them a sense of what countries could potentially be in trouble. And so I worked on that task force for five years. It was fascinating on many levels. It was composed half of experts on conflict, like me, academics, and half of data analysts who crunched the numbers. And one of the academics' jobs was to just take the vast scholarly literature. There's been an enormous amount of studies, quantitative studies done on what are the factors that lead countries to civil wars. And they wanted to know what were those factors. And initially, we started with 38 of them, things like poverty, income inequality, the racial and ethnic diversity of a country. We gave this to the data analysts, and they played with the models until they came up with a model that best predicted civil war onset with the fewest variables. And it turns out of all of those variables that we gave them, two were highly predictive and they were not the ones that the experts thought would be really important. So we were actually surprised at what the final model looked like. And then the two factors that came out very important was something that we called anocracy. Anocracy is just a fancy term for partial democracy. It's countries that are neither fully democratic nor fully autocratic. There's something in between. And so you could think about countries will become anocracies if they were authoritarian states that were trying to democratize. They kind of hit the middle zone. But you can also become an anocracy in the opposite direction, where you're a democracy that's in decline, and you will eventually become an anocracy. So that was the most important factor. And the second factor was whether the citizens in these countries, these partial democracies, organize themselves politically around race, ethnicity, or religion, and not around political ideology. And so when you started to have what people are calling tribal politics. So think about this. This was a model based on everything we've seen in countries around the world over the last 70 plus years, we were not allowed to look at the United States, talk about the United States, include the United States. This is just what history was telling us. And these were the two most important factors. If a country had these two factors, the task force put that country on what we called the watch list. This country was then considered at high risk of political instability and or political violence and we handed this list over to the White House. So here I am, about four times a year, I'm sitting in a conference room in suburban Virginia with a bunch of really, really smart people, and we're talking about these issues, and we're never, ever talking about the United States. <laughs> You're literally whistling past the graveyard. I know. I'm watching what's happening in my own country. And 
You know, we know that America's democracy has declined by the measure that we use, which comes from this data set called the Polity data set. That's the data set that has this anocracy variable. By that measure, the United States, our democracy went from being a full democracy in 2015. It was downgraded a few points in 2016. It was downgraded again in 2019. And by December of 2020, it was downgraded another time to the point where it hit the middle zone, this anocracy zone for the very first time since 1800. So I'm watching that happen. And I know how important this variable is. And then when I thought about the second variable, this, you know, if you start to have political parties based on race, ethnicity and religion versus real political issues, that's been happening in the United States as well. So if you think back to pre 2008, white Americans were equally likely to vote for the Democratic Party as for the Republican Party. And then Starting in 2008, the white working class began to gravitate towards the Republican Party. You know, and today the Republican Party is over 80% white and overwhelmingly Christian. And that's in a country that's multi ethnic, multi religious. And you could even, if you look at the Democratic side, you know, the Democratic side, the overwhelming percentage of African Americans votes Democrat. The majority of Asians vote Democrat, a large majority of Latinos vote Democrat, Muslims, Jews, you know, atheists all vote Democrat. So again, by the definition that the task force used for ethno-factionalism, which is the word we use, the United States had that variable as well. So I want to get to what you just said in a second, but before I do that, so when a country enters this anocracy zone, I'm going to make this simple enough for me. It's like those old seesaws you saw on a playground, right? You know, sometimes you would stand in the middle and you're trying to stay balanced, right? You're trying to keep your balance and that's very difficult to do. You can either go to one side altogether and you have some stability, you go another side and have some stability, or you can fall off. And the civil war is when you fall off. It's not that precipitous. The middle zone, the anocracy zone is actually quite large. The way we measure it, the scale goes from negative 10. Negative 10 is the most authoritarian types of governments. North Korea, Saudi Arabia, Bahrain. You don't want to be in that camp, but they are negative 10s. On the other end of the scale are the positive 10s. These are the most democratic governments, the Denmark, Switzerland's, Canada's. The United States was a positive 10 for much of the last 100 years. And then the anocracy zone is large. It goes from negative 5 to positive five. And so the way to think about it is as a democracy declines, as individuals are losing rights and freedoms, as constraints on presidential power are being loosened, as you start to have voter suppression, you go deeper and deeper into this middle zone. And where the wars tend to occur is between negative one and positive one. So right in the middle. And so, you know, in some respects, it's good that it's not a, a seesaw where you have to balance really, really carefully. What it tells you is the less democratic your country becomes, the higher the risk becomes. And at some point after negative one, if you continue to sort of remove democratic features of, of your government and you become more authoritarian as you're going towards that negative 10, actually, the risk of civil war declines. 
So full democracies almost never experience civil wars, and full autocracies rarely experience civil wars. One is the ultimate stability. The other one is stability created by repression. Exactly. So let's get to the parties as a makeup in the ethnic religious piece of this, because that's one thing that we've seen, to your point, right? If you're an evangelical in this country, if you identify as an evangelical, you're almost assuredly voting Republican. And you may not probably even think that the Republican Party is far enough into your worldview, right? You'll take what you can get because you're certainly not a Democrat. And then you mentioned the flip side with the Democrats. But one thing I wanted to talk about, too, though, is that what comes along with this, and you mentioned factionalism, I'm just going to read this here from your book, is that is that what also comes along with this, too, is not only the factionalization, but also the loss of status. We hate to lose and our loss averse. Quote, they will not tolerate losing status in a place they believe is theirs. Yes. And one of the things I want to emphasize is I didn't write that with the United States in mind. There is a very deep, large literature in political science about this concept called sons of the soil. Political scientists know who tends to start civil wars, especially ethnic and racial civil wars. We know who organizes for that. And it's not the groups that most people think. Most people think, oh, it's going to be the poorest people in society, or it's going to be the groups that are most discriminated against, most oppressed. It's going to be the immigrants. Those groups do not rebel. And in part, they don't rebel because they don't have the energy to rebel. They don't have the resources to rebel. And governments are watching them really carefully and controlling them. The groups that tend to rebel are what we call sons of the soil. They are the groups that had once been politically and socially dominant and are in decline. And they are often in decline because of demographic changes. So if you think, for example, about, you know, the Philippines has had an insurgency in the southern part of the country for decades, almost 40 years now, and it's Muslims had been the overwhelming majority in, in Mindanao, that's the south of Philippines. And then the Philippines government started encouraging Catholics from the north to move in to the point where today Muslims are only a majority in a small portion of Mindanao. And when they started losing their land, when they started losing status, when Catholics started determining what the holidays were going to be and what language was going to be spoken and who were going to get the best jobs, that's when they began to organize and that's when they turned to violence. And so you see this all around the globe. And so, again, if you know these studies, if you know this research, and you then apply it to the United States, you see, oh my gosh, you know, the white population here in the United States is in decline. By 2045, whites will be a minority in the United States. That's not going to change. And there is a subset of the white population which is deeply resentful of this change. They feel that it is their right to rule that this is their country, and that they are justified in using whatever means are necessary to maintain control. And, and you saw this in January 6th. I want to talk about January 6th for a second, in that Barton Gelman wrote an incredible piece for The Atlantic at the beginning of this year called uh, January 6th was Practice. And he references another political scientist from the University of Chicago, I believe. Yeah, Bob Pate. Yeah, who said the same thing that you said, which was, the people who you would have thought were becoming the most radicalized, were the most likely to show up at the Capitol were not young, economically disenfranchised, jobless, you know, 
they were mostly men in their 30s and 40s, professionals, educated, successful in some regard, had the resources to get there. But the thing to your point, Barbara, was that they disproportionately came not from congressional districts that Donald Trump won, but congressional districts that Joe Biden won, where there had been a significant increase in a minority population. That's the sons of the soil dynamic, right? It's where the dominant group feels the greatest threat, where they see that they no longer have the numbers to continue to win elections, when they see that they no longer have that democracy will no longer serve them. And that's when some of them begin to get radicalized and they move towards the extreme and they begin to support extremists within their ranks who are promoting violence as a means to maintain dominance. I know you're not a psychologist, you're not a psychiatrist, but walk us through a little bit of the psychology because you said in one passage of the book that, you know, they'll take poverty, they'll take joblessness, they'll take this, they'll take this. But to echo, you said they won't take a loss in status. I mean, this is basically my cohort, right? I'm 46 suburban, the whole thing. What is it about the fact that like 10 years ago there were, and let's make it easy, there were five black families and three Latino families in your neighborhood. And today there's 20 black families and 10 Latino families. Like your life, if I'm sitting in my, my house, my life hasn't changed. Get to work every day, you know, come home, watch basketball, whatever it is. But what is it about that that is so defining and so shattering for the people that we're talking about. Yeah. You know, if I could go back to graduate school and I could study anything again, I would go and study the brain because I think a lot of human behavior that seems irrational, a lot of human behavior that's quite destructive is stuff that we are wired for. When I talk to people who study this, we have the ancient brain, the amygdala, and then we have, you know, our more modern brain, which is the more executive functioning, high functioning brains. But, you know, our reptilian brain is what's kept us alive. That's where survival, our survival instincts are located. And we respond very, very strongly to things that we feel threaten us and that make us fearful and make us angry. And so, you know, those famous studies by Kahneman and Sversky about loss aversion that for reasons we don't entirely understand, human beings will do everything to avoid loss much more than they will do to make gains. And so this extends to everything. You know, we hate to lose a boyfriend or girlfriend. We hate to lose money. We hate to lose a game. We hate to lose the respect of somebody. And boy, do we hate losing our status in society. And I think for whites, many of us aren't even aware of the implicit privilege that we live in. So right after the election in 2016, I got invited to be part of a panel that was uh, put on by Sirius XM Radio, a woman named Karen Hunter. And I'd been on her show many times and she said, can you come do this? It was a black crowd and it was five white people sitting up there. There were like two sort of ultra liberal guys, two conservatives, and I guess I was in the middle. And one of the people in the crowd asked the question, what does it feel like to be white? And the two liberal guys are twisting and turning, trying to figure out the right way to answer this question in a politically correct manner. And they said, what do you think? And I said, I don't think about it. And like the, everybody's like, okay, because we don't have to think about it. You wake up in the morning, you are who you are. 
you know, look, this is, does not go to the fact that there aren't many white people who are suffering through bad stuff, but don't have to worry about not getting a cab. Don't have to worry about somebody not wanting to help you out just by the nature of your skin color. And I think that's absolutely right, is that you don't have to think about it. You take everything, so much of it, Barbara, for granted. And maybe that's the thing, is that in that moment when your brain switches from I've got it all, I don't think about it, to holy, you know what, I got to think about it. Could that be such a psychologically damaging moment for somebody who's already maybe teed up to do that with some of the what you call accelerants, whether or not that's social media, whether or not that's Fox News, whether or not that's what you call either racial or violence entrepreneurs? Yeah. And Reed, it's even more than that. There has been real loss, especially for white men. You know, as late as the 1970s, all the positions in the most elite universities here in the United States were given to white men. Everybody else was excluded. And so you had entree into the best universities, which then gave you entree into the best, you know, banking jobs and lucrative careers. You had access to loans because you then had a good job. I mean, all of that, there was so much less competition and the field was designed to be unequal and to give preference to you. And suddenly you're in a situation where, you know, 60% of university graduates are now women. And if university admissions committees didn't actively try to keep that number down, it would be higher. More than a majority of med school graduates, law school graduates, business school graduates are, are now women. And that means they can then compete for the best jobs. And then if you add to that the loss of manufacturing jobs, right? You could be a white man in the 1950s, 60s, 70s, not go to college. In fact, not even finish high school. And you could get a well-paying, stable union job that allowed you to live, you and your family to live a good life. A solidly middle-class American dream lifestyle. Exactly. And that doesn't exist anymore. And instead, you're living in a world where you see coastal elites. You see immigrants from China and India moving to Silicon Valley and living the American dream that is not available to you. And so there has been real loss. I'm not saying that's a good thing or a bad thing, but white men went from being top of the heap and being, you know, guaranteed a really good life to no longer being guaranteed that. And at the same time, watching people who don't look like them getting the benefits that they had once had. And if the entire system is designed around you, your identity, your religion, your preferences, you think this is the norm. And then suddenly the world shifts and suddenly you're being asked and then told that, no, 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 you have to take other people's interests into account and they have a voice. And in fact, their voice is different and they want different things. And you can't dictate how the world is going to look. And you actually have to change and accommodate them. You're like, I used to be able to walk into the office and say whatever the hell I wanted to say. And now I can't do that. And it is very much a sense of loss to those individuals who never experienced loss before. Let me just ask this, and this is probably more of an economic question. You know, there is the economic decline spurs the feeling of status decline, whether or not they are on a parallel or even a coexistent path, I guess is the way to put it. But We've known since the late 70s, to your point, that manufacturing was moving away, that we were becoming a post-industrial society. But it does not look like from a 
policy perspective that the powers that be, whether or not they were corporate or governmental, were doing anything to account for that. And so, you know, it's sort of like ignoring it'll go away, right? Like we, we say that a lot, like it never goes away. It just gets worse. And, you know, to use a medical thing, right? Oh, I got this lump. Oh, it's fine. Don't worry about it. And before you know it, it's gigantic. And, and you're like, oh God, I'm in a lot of trouble. And so these things, they both grow and metastasize. Yes. And that's true. You know, and Clinton was the one who signed NAFTA. And, you know, the argument that was made, which was correct, is that the United States as a whole will benefit from free trade. That is true. But the story that wasn't told was that there would also be winners and losers. And certain segments of the economy were going to benefit and certain segments were not going to benefit. And economists and politicians who were pushing for NAFTA knew that the losers in this would be Americans who had manufacturing jobs, which would move abroad because that is a more efficient way to produce the products. And they made no effort to create a safety net for the individuals who were going to suffer. And so here we are in 2022, or you know, starting in 2016, where those individuals have seen real losses in terms of their income. And in fact, if you look at different demographics, Asians, Latinos, African-Americans, and whites, and you look at a whole host of measures, their income, their education level, their marriage rates, their divorce rates, their suicide rates, their drug addiction rates, it's whites, the white working class that has declined the most on all of those measures. And Latinos and African-Americans at worst have remained steady. So it has been that once privileged white population that used to be able to live a high quality life that has suffered most from these changes. Now they started at a much, much higher rate than Latinos and African-Americans. But again, from their point of view, their perception is that they have lost significantly. All right. So let's fast forward to 2015. Donald Trump comes down the escalator and he does the rapists and murderer speech. And people like me, you know, who like to think of myself as probably more enlightened than I actually am are appalled by this. But there's a whole bunch of people cheering, right? Does the cohort that you're talking about, does that mass of disaffected people, did they need a Donald Trump to become the force in American politics that they are? Was he the entrepreneur, as you call them, they needed? Did they need someone to embody, to coalesce around? Or do you think without him, it would have just been sort of this simmering, seething underground thing? If you look historically, you need a body. You need this ethnic entrepreneur. In the United States, it was Donald Trump. If Donald Trump hadn't run, somebody else like Donald Trump would have run. You know, if the conditions are there, somebody will rise up to take advantage of them. Somebody will figure out. Donald Trump got lucky in that, you know, he was in this very, very deep, large field of Republican candidates. Nobody thought he had a chance. And he just started kind of spewing his anti-immigrant narrative which none of the other candidates were doing. And it resonated, it resonated. And suddenly it catapulted to the top of that field. And that's when you see, wow, the conditions were there. It needed somebody to give it a voice, to begin to hammer it home, to 
create a strong narrative and to sort of build a, a media blitz behind it. And, you know, Donald Trump just happened to be masterful at that particular skill. Right. So Donald Trump wins the Republican nomination. He wins the presidency, which few, if anybody, including I think him, thought was going to happen. He takes office. So take us through a couple of the things that start to ratchet down the United States in terms of it being a democracy. Yeah. So the Center for Systemic Peace, which is the nonprofit that compiles the data for the polity scale that the task force uses, the Center for Systemic Peace really cares very heavily about the strength of democratic institutions. Freedom House cares a lot about freedom of speech and individual rights. The polity scale doesn't. They care about, okay, how strong are the democratic institutions? Do they have the ability to constrain a president who might want to become an autocrat? Do they have the, the ability to basically keep potentially bad people in line? That's what they care a lot about. And so when they start to see the guardrails for democracy come off, if they start to see um, a president successfully becoming more powerful, if they start to see a president starting to attack opponents, threaten to throw them in jail, start to appoint loyalists onto the Supreme Court and other judicial appointments, that makes the Center for Systemic Peace really nervous. And so when they first downgraded the U.S. from positive 10 to positive 9 in 2016, there was a number of different reasons. But the most important one was that the 2016 election was deemed free but not entirely fair. And it was deemed not entirely fair in part because of partisan meddling at the local level and in part because our own intelligence agencies came out and said, yes, in fact, Russia under Putin did try to influence the outcome of that election via social media. So that downgraded us. If, if your elections are not considered by international election monitors entirely fair, then you're not going to be considered a, a full, healthy democracy. The center downgraded the United States again in 2019, down to a positive seven. And that was really had to do with how the executive branch, how the White House responded to requests by Congress for information related to the impeachment of Donald Trump and how the White House responded to subpoenas. When our founding fathers designed our democracy, the thing they worried about the most was the executive branch. They worried that a president would make himself king, and they really, really didn't want another monarchy. And so their main check on executive power on the president was Congress. So Congress is supposed to be the big watchdog over the White House. The people's houses watching the power. It's the people's houses where a president refuses to comply with requests from Congress. If it thumbs its nose at subpoenas, if the president tells members of his administration to ignore subpoenas, this indicates that you have a president that is potentially running amok and certainly not respecting the separation of power and the balance of power. But Donald Trump is the first president in the history of the United States who actively tried to overturn an election and tried to prevent the peaceful transfer of power. It's really quite shocking. It is. And so here we are now. There are now more than 100 Republican candidates who will be on the ballot in the general election in November. 
who say 2020 was stolen. We've always known it wasn't stolen. There's even more direct evidence now that it wasn't stolen. But these folks, they've got one of two choices. They can say, I thought it was, I'm seeing this, I've reconsidered, not going to happen. They're going to double and triple down on this. And that's going to fire those muscles of you know the extremists or the people who could become extremists even more. And Trump will not lay off of it. So where does that leave us now? I really worry a lot about 2024 because I don't see a good outcome no matter who wins. If the Republicans win, their strategy is an anti-democratic strategy. They've made clear that they have no interest right now to broaden their tent to include a wider variety of Americans, and their base won't allow it. You know, they are dealing with a rabid passionate base that turns out that can get people elected and throw those who don't agree with them out of power. And they are doubling down that this is a white Christian country and that's all they will tolerate. So the Republican leadership is in this very deep bind where they know that the fastest declining demographic in the United States are whites. And they saw it in 2000. They saw it you know, again, in the last election that they don't have the votes to gain the presidency. And so they either broaden their tent or undercut democracy in various ways. You suppress the vote, cement in judges who are going to be sympathetic to your cause. You essentially create a system that disproportionately favors the minority, and then you create a system of minority rule. So I worry that if Republicans win in 2024, we're going to go deeper into the inocracy zone. And if the Democrats win, the Republican leadership is going to double down that it was stolen again. And for you know a majority of Republicans who believe that 2020 was stolen from them, this is going to make them even angrier. And it's going to push a certain percentage of them more towards extremists again, like the Proud Boys and the Three Percenters and the Oath Keepers saying, the system is rigged against us and we have to rise up. Right. So how do we get out of this? The easiest thing we could do, regulate social media. It would immediately tamp down all the hate, disinformation, the anger. And the five biggest tech companies in the world, they're all based here. So we have the ability to regulate them and we regulate every other form of media. And we now live in a world where a majority of Americans get their news from social media. So that would be the easiest thing to do. Everything else is hard. We know full democracies don't experience civil war. So what does that tell us? Reform and strengthen our democracy. The problem is that one of our two main parties has no interest in democratic reform because they can't compete in that system. And our other party doesn't have the votes to institute any reform. So I don't know where we're going to go there with political reform. If reform isn't going to come from the top down, then it has to come from the bottom up. And that means Americans will have to get out to vote. Americans have to be willing to protest if various democratic institutions are weakened. But voting actually is really important. You know, people talk about Kentucky as a deeply red state. And we don't really know if Kentucky's a deeply red state. Only 22% of eligible voters in Kentucky vote. That means that almost 80% of eligible voters in Kentucky don't vote. They're not participating in the system. So all we know is Kentucky is a non-voting state. So you can imagine a scenario where if both parties 
had really, really active get out the vote campaigns where you did actually knock on doors, which political scientists know is very, very effective. And if you go to people and just encourage them to vote, make it easier for them to vote, turnout would increase and we would have a different profile of person in Congress and likely in the White House as well. Had Hillary Clinton gone door to door in Michigan, she probably would have won. So turnout really does matter. And many, many Americans are standing on the sidelines and they're not participating in their democracy. And if they don't participate in the democracy, then people who want power are going to take it away from them. Well, and that's one thing, you know, as we start to wrap up here, we saw some publicly available research and they were asking, like, do you believe democracy matters? And it, it was really, really not a great answer, Barbara. <laughs> it was really not. But you said this early in the book. Uh, it said people will often sacrifice freedom if they believe it will make them more secure, you know, which is antithetical to what Franklin said. If you trade security for freedom, you deserve neither. And then Eisenhower said, like, you can live in a secure area, four walls, three meals a day, but they call it a prison. And so there's somewhere here you mentioned where oftentimes when civil wars take hold and the violence really ramps up, people are sort of surprised by like, well, how did that happen? Because to your point, like most folks just want to get through the day. We're all really busy. Like we have kids to raise and we have jobs to go to and we have to go to the grocery store and cook dinner and we have busy lives and we don't really have time to think about it. And then I do think, again, this gets back to psychology that human beings are innately hopeful, right? This gets us through our day, gets us up in the morning that you think, oh, no, no, things are going to get better. They're not going to get worse. And of course, these ethnic entrepreneurs who want to gain power by fomenting fear, by manufacturing and exaggerating threats, you know, they take advantage of the distraction of people's sort of, no, 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 everything's going to be fine to begin to organize a movement, to begin to, you know, have a strategy whereby they will grab power and whereby, you know, if they have to turn to violence, people will be unprepared because that, of course, is to their strategic advantage. Right. And of course, folks, if faced with that, most of them will stay in their houses, lock the door, hope it passes them by. And as I've said repeatedly, it never passes you by. Barbara, I want to thank you for an incredibly enlightening, I'd like to say an uplifting conversation, but I don't think that's what it was, but very necessary. Where can our listeners find your work? And if you have social media, where can they find you there? I just Google Barbara F. Walter. You'll find pretty much everything you'd want to find. I also have a website, BarbaraFWalter.com, and you can download a lot of my previous research as well. So it's easily accessible. Well, and remember, everyone, must read, must read, must read How Civil Wars Start and How to Stop Them. Get it at your favorite local bookstore, your local bookseller. If you have to go to the big A in the sky, go to the big A in the sky. Get it, read it, highlight it, learn. As always, everybody, you can find me on social media at Reed Galen on Twitter, at Reed underscore Galen underscore LP on Instagram. Barbara, I want to thank you for joining me today and everybody else. We'll see you next time. Thanks again to everyone for listening. Be sure to follow and subscribe to The Lincoln Project on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google, or however you listen. Don't forget to leave a five-star review. To connect with us, follow us on Twitter at Project Lincoln. And for more information on our movement, to join our mailing list, subscribe to our newsletter, or make a contribution to our efforts, visit lincolnproject.us. Also, be sure to check out our LPTV lineup, including The Breakdown with Tara Setmayer and Rick Wilson, which airs Tuesdays and Thursdays at 8 p.m. Eastern. 
as well as We're Speaking with Lisa Senecal and Maya May, which airs Wednesday nights at 8 p.m. Eastern. All shows you can stream live on the Lincoln Project's YouTube, Facebook, and Twitter pages. And we'd love you to join us for our newest show, Lunch with Lincoln, which airs every Friday at noon Eastern on our YouTube channel. For the Lincoln Project, I'm Reed Galen. See you on the next episode.